Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Glossy Beauty Podcast. I'm your host for today, Emma Sandler, Senior Beauty and Wellness Reporter. Today, we are welcoming Julian Addo, the founder and CEO of hair care brand Adua Beauty. Adua Beauty launched in 2017 and inked a retail partnership with Sephora in 2019. Julian, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Emma. I'm such a huge fan of the show. Julian, you have a, a quite an interesting personal and professional story. I read that you were born in Liberia and raised in New York City. You've been a stylist, a salon owner, a banker, and of course now a brand founder. Could you tell us a, a bit about this trajectory? It's so crazy when you say, when you say it back. It's so crazy. It's just You've lived living. like five lives. It's amazing to me. I really have. It's so hilarious. Well, yes, it's true. I was born in West Africa, Liberia. My mom immigrated to the States in 1981, and then me and my sister came over in 82, and we settled in a small immigrant community in Staten Island, New York, called Park Hill. And um, that's where I was raised. And, you know, like immigrants do, I don't know, one comes over, we throw like the fire across the pond and everyone comes over. So when we first moved to Staten Island, it was like a middle class, I would say probably predominantly black, but it was very mixed also neighborhood. Um, and then after a few years, it was it became an immigrant neighborhood, just like sections of New York are. And um, I was, since we, obviously I'm an immigrant, I didn't have like a green card to work. Um, my mom actually became a U.S. citizen in 1986 because Ronald Reagan passed the Immigration Reform Act um, and that granted her citizenship. And, you know, for all intents and purposes, my sister and I, we should have been automatic citizens because we were minors. But my mom did not know how to, she didn't fill out the paperwork properly. Um, that's just plain and simple. So we got caught in this web of not having the proper documentation um, for for work. We were legal, so we were protected underneath her status, but we didn't have like a work permit or a green card to work. So I'm in middle school and all of my friends are like working in New York City. We had something called work study. And basically what work study was what is allowed students to work a certain amount of hours after school, supervised. So all of my friends got jobs at Subway, at McDonald's, at typical fast food places that teenagers do. But I couldn't work because I didn't have the status to work. And I was like, oh, my God, how am I going to make money? I really want to work. You know, my mom couldn't afford a single mother to buy me all of the flyest things, you know, the Jordans and all of the things that inner city kids do. And I just wanted to figure out a way to earn some money. So I became friends just kind of circumstantially with a girl that did hair in her apartment after school. She was four or five years older than me. So she was in high school. I'm in middle school. Um, and we became friends and I would go to her house and she would have all these clients paying her to do her hair. And I would just watch. And I was just like, oh my God, I can't believe like she's doing this. And like she has, it was the first, first time I've seen someone having their own business. Um, and then, you know, after a while, she'd be like, can you help me Roll a set this. Can you help me do this and do that? And then she would pay me like 10 bucks, 15 bucks, 20 bucks. And I did that for a while. And then I was like, I could do this myself. And I started doing my, my friend's hair. I would just repli replicate what I saw her do. And that's how I learned to do all of the hairstyles, specifically like black hairstyles of the 90s. We would do finger waves and pinup curls and pin curls and all these um, amazing things that she was doing. And after about a year and a half in doing that, I was like, I can actually make some money from this. Like this could be a career. So she attended a vocational high school on Staten Island called Ralph McKee Vocational Technical High School. She was taking up cosmetology. And 
as she started talking to me about it, she was like, yeah, once I graduate, I'll have my license and I could work in a salon. And I was like, wait, so you're not going to go to college and you don't have to pay for hair school. You can just get this for free. And she was like, yeah, girl, you know, McKee has the program and that's why everybody goes to McKee. And I was like, hmm, I really didn't know in my young mind, I'm about 14, I'm entering ninth grade of high school, and I get drafted to one of the best high schools on Staten Island called Tottenville High School, which um, because of my academics, they were only allowing a certain amount of students in. So it was a big deal that I was going to that high school, which was about an hour and a half, hour and a half away from where I lived. Um, so I'd take two buses to go to school. But when she started talking to me that she's going to school and she's taking up cosmetology, I was like, hmm, maybe I should do that too, because I'm not really sure if and when I'm going to get a green card. My mom cannot afford to pay for school. What do I do after high school? I'm not going to be able to go to college. I can't get financial aid. So for me, it was trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my life. So I, without my mom's consent, (laughs) I enrolled myself. I took myself out of Tottenville. I forged her signature. I hope the statute of limitations is over on that so I don't get in trouble. (laughs) But I was about to say, when did she find out you did this? She found out after. Obviously, she, she found out after I told her why I did it. She was upset that I did it, but... I'm very convincing and it's like I did it for a reason. I didn't just do it to like be like bad. I was like, mom, I I can make all this money. I'm not really sure when my green card is going to come. And, you know, once I graduate high school, I can do the cosmetology program and then I can take the state board and I can work and I can help you. So I think the way that I convinced, I I told it to her, she was like, okay, I see what you were doing, but still wasn't cool. So she was mad, but she kind of let it go. And I did uh, I did that. So when I graduated high school in 97, I took the state board and um, I became a licensed stylist and worked in salons. And then my family relocated to Minnesota in 98. And I opened my own salon in 1999, 2000 in Minnesota um, by saving money and doing hair. So I've been in hair for as long as I can. Banking came circumstantially. I was engaged and I accompanied my then fiance to a job interview. Um, we were actually getting married the same year in 2002. And he goes in the back and he has all these series of interviews and I'm sitting at the front with the receptionist and we just start talking and I start telling her what I did in my own salon and we just start chit-chatting and building a rapport. And about an hour passes, and I'm like, dang, what are they doing? Guess he had like two or three interviews that day. And she was like, I think you should apply. And I was like, but I'm not looking for a job. Didn't you just hear what I said? I have my own salon. I'm just here for moral support. Exactly. I'm making all this money. I have a really thriving salon. Like, I'm not looking for a job. She was like, I really think you should apply. You have a great voice. You have a great personality. And you would do good at this job. And I was like, okay, whatever. So I filled out the application, but just kind of like something to do. I wasn't actually thinking of getting a job. Long story short, they ended up calling me and not him. So he stayed all that time and he didn't even get the job. (laughs) Wow. Oh, my goodness. And that's how I got into banking. Um, And at first it was because we were getting married and we needed health insurance. I took the job for health insurance. Mind you, I still had my salon. So what I did is I found that there was another hairstylist that moved from Staten Island, where I was from, to Minnesota. Minnesota just got like an influx of Liberian immigrants around that time. I'm not really sure why, but we were all just moving. Um, There was also a civil war happening in the country. And I think states have some sort of program where they can bring over refugees. So there were a lot of Liberian refugees in Minnesota. But then also a lot of people from New York was were also moving to Minnesota. So I, I called her up and I said, hey, I have a salon. I have this job that I have to start and I really need your help. And she was like, uh, I don't know, because she lived like an hour or two away from the salon. I was like, what do I need to get you to come and help me at the salon? And she was like, this, this and this. And I was like, you got it. 
So what did I what I end up doing was I ended up accepting the job, which was a job at Citigroup. And I convinced her to work at the salon and I convinced all of my clientele to go to her and for the clientele that absolutely needed to sit in my chair, I scheduled them all on Fridays and Saturdays. And then at Citigroup, I convinced them to give me four 10-hour days so that I could complete my 40 hours. So I'd work, salons are traditionally closed Sunday and Monday. So Monday was not a problem. So I worked at Citigroup Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday from like 7 a.m. to like five or something like that, 10 hours. And then I had Fridays off. And then I worked at the salon Fridays and Saturdays. So like for two years, I worked six days a week, full-time jobs on my feet. Well, the salon was on my feet. City Group was customer service. And I was just sitting down taking calls. It was easy money. Um, and then in 2004, I ended up selling the salon because I did really well at City Group. I got a promotion. City Group had benefits and medical and tuition reimbursement. And back in those days, jobs had pensions. And it was like taking candy from a baby. And to be honest, it was also the first time where I had an opportunity, because now I I have a green card, and I have an opportunity to have a plan B, because I had not gone to college at that time. I was just doing hair in the salon. Citigroup had tuition reimbursement, so they actually paid for you to go to school. If you took a like course and you got like, if you got like B's or C's, they pay like 85%. If you got like A's, they paid 100%. So I was like, I'm going to get 100%. Immigrant mentality, I'm going to get everything that they're offering. I'm going to leave nothing on the table. So I started um, a Normandale Community College with Citigroup tuition reimbursement because I was paying for it out of pocket whatever they didn't pay for. I was like, okay, I'll do two years my associate at a community college, and then I'll transfer two years at a bachelor's because everyone asked, where'd you get your bachelor's anyway? So I could save some money that way. So that's what I did. Um, I ended up working for Citigroup, selling my salon. Um, I became a manager. Citigroup relocated me to Texas, got a promotion, um, climbed up the ranks, left AVP position at Bank of America to come back into the natural, to join the natural hair community. So it's a very long story, but it's very twist and turns, lots of twist and turns. Yeah, but so many opportunities for learning along the way. And I'm, I'm seeing as well between the conversation with your mother, where you convinced her that you were making the right decision, and also convincing Citigroup that you could work four 10-hour days, you're definitely a skilled negotiator. <laughs> Which was huge because nobody else, like that was outside of what they did. Like it was a, it was an entry level position. I was in it's no all pre-COVID too. Like no one, no one was doing anything like that. Exactly. Exactly. So I think I, I, looking back, you're right. I have a unique ability to cross-reference, right? Because even getting the job at Citigroup, I'd never done that before. But to me, every job is communication skills, it's negotiation skills, it's being polite. Like, I I could convince, like, even when I got promoted in Citigroup, I convinced um, my AVP that I could be a manager because I managed a salon. Yeah, I didn't manage reps, but it's the same thing. It's time management. It's coming to work on time. It's managing your work day, managing your workload. So I think I have the unique ability to see how everything correlates rather than pigeonhole into I do this. It's like everything is connected. You know how to do one, you know how to do a lot of different things. Yeah, I'm wondering how many people have also told you like, oh, you're so good at communication and and advocating for yourself. Like you should become a lawyer. Like that should be the next thing. <laughs> oh my God, I can't believe you said that. I wanted to be a lawyer. Like when I was coming up, I wanted to be a lawyer because I was so convincing. Like I, I naturally, like we could be talking about toothpaste and what I found out over the years is I, I come off very confident. Um, even if I'm not confident, I did speech and debate. And so I really enjoyed like seeing how if you keep talking to somebody, you can really convince them to see your thought process because a lot of people are not sure anyway. You know what I mean? So, yes. but <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I can't believe you said that. 
I'm curious, though, with all of the experiences you have had, what kind of led you ultimately to want to start a brand, especially in the hair care space? You have that relationship, but it's something else to start a brand. Honestly, I didn't want to. I feel like it was my calling. So I joined the natural hair community in 2012. I chopped off my relaxed hair to go natural because I saw, you know, all of this action happening on YouTube and on Instagram. Instagram was very new at the time. I think they started in 2010 or 2011. And I just saw like all of these Black women chopping off their hair and returning to natural. And that really reinvigorated the passion in me to get back into beauty because now I could go in with, now it felt more substantial than just being a stylist. Um, and so I created a blog called Bella Kinks, which Bella for beautiful because I took Italian and kinks to describe our hair. And I kind of had events and I would work with all of the big brands in the space, the Shea Moisture Curls, like all of the big players. I'd reach out to them to sponsor these events and expos that I was having. And then I'd have to reach out to the influencers to get them to speak so that they could bring people in the door because no one knew who I was. Kind of like a rookie in a vet. (laughs) I've been in a space for a long time, but where social media is concerned, no one knows who I am or know my experience. So I'd start working with brands. I'd start working with influencers and I had the corporate background. So it was a really, it was really God's plan for me to kind of veer off into corporate America because that gave me an additional skill set that I didn't have and I wouldn't have had I just stayed doing being a stylist. And so I just kept seeing as great as the industry was, we were so underground. Um, around this time, I was also like reading industry news and publications and websites, you know, blogs and all these things was, you know, digital was coming into play. And I was just reading everything. I've always really been a student of the industry, not just my niche. And I did that for a few years. In about 2016, I don't know, 2016 was just that aha year for me. So I ended up getting a freelance opportunity with Sally Beauty. Um, I was also working with smaller Black-owned brands and doing marketing for them. Not digitally marketing trained, but I was like, I could do better than what you're doing. Basically just putting together campaigns for influencers. If they had a new product launch, I create the an event or the campaign to make that more buzzy for them. Um, so in 2016, there was just a lot happening on social and that was a big year for me. I discovered Into the Gloss, um, which was the blog that Emily Weiss started and I'd read people's stories and they had this top shelf section that I was completely enamored with. And then I was like looking at all of the natural hair care products and the brands that I was working with. And I was like, I don't have really anything to put on my top shelf. Like why, why don't our things look like that? Like they're great and what's in the container. And these brands were innovating. They were using all of these natural ingredients. They were sourcing from all over the world, making products in their kitchen. But what had not changed for me was the outside, the packaging. Because keep in mind, I entered beauty in 94. We, you know, our, our brands, our products that we were using in the salon and the packaging, even the same Boston round bottles, like are the exact same. And the only thing that was changing was the, was the, um, the labels, you know, and then I saw Glossier launched. Well, they had already launched two years prior, but I had just gotten into them and the Casper, the mattresses and then Warby Parker. It was like, Because of social media, because of the digital space, everything that we had in our home, everything that was made that was old was being repackaged, rebranded, remarketed, and it was new again. It felt cool again. Like, I can't believe a brand made mattresses cool. Like, I love their social media, how they boxed it and they rolled it. I wanted a mattress, even though I didn't need a mattress. And I kept comparing where I was to what I was seeing. And I just wasn't seeing what was happening outside with other brands happening in the space with not just Black-owned brands, but hair care brands, 
that are promoted or um, marketed to black people. Because even when they're done by the conglomerates, it's still kind of packaged very stereotypically. And I just didn't understand what the difference was. So I basically put a deck together and I pitched what is now Audra Beauty to, I first pitched that to my Black-owned clients. I was like, I think we're ready for the next step. I think we're ready for a clean, gender-neutral, modern beauty brand that's catered to textured hair. Like, it doesn't look like it's for a certain customer. Anyone will pick it up. But, you know, it's 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 marketed to. There's, like, strong brand elements. I wanted to do all the marketing for it. I didn't want to do it. I didn't have the money. And I didn't have the know-how. And they loved it, and they were like, okay, I think, you know, I really like that, but no one was really, like, moving on it. And then, since I'm freelancing for Sally Beauty, I wait a few months, and then I pitch it to Sally Beauty, and of course, everyone always loved it and loved the idea. I even drew, like, mock-ups of what the packaging should look like, and, you know, there was nothing. I literally woke up March of 2016, and I was like... F it. I'm going to do it myself. And that's how Audra Beauty was born. So basically, Audra Beauty was born just out of my frustration of wanting everyone else to do what my vision was. Um, and no one did it. And just knowing, well, maybe you have to do it. Maybe they don't have your vision because they're not you and you're supposed to be the one to execute this. And, 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 and I started working on everything. I started working on the branding, the marketing, the website. I didn't have the money. I was freelancing, but I was saving my money. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to tell anybody I'm doing this. Let me just like buy the website and buy the logo and, you know, do things little by little. And then once I have like a brand, then I could put it out. Um, so I thought it would have taken me two, three years. I had no idea that by 2017, I'd have six products and all the tools to to launch. And that's that's how we're here. Is there a meaning or significance for the name Adua Beauty? Yeah, so when I was creating Adua Beauty, I knew that I had to pull from my life and my experiences and my vision super heavily so that I could enjoy the brand because it really came from a passionate place. So I went back to my culture. So Adwa is my traditional name. Um, as we stated earlier, I was born in Liberia, but my father was from Ghana, which is also another country in West Africa. And in my father's culture, they name the children after the day of the week that they were born. So Adwa is very popular in Western Africa. It's like very common. It's like Michelle or Lisa. So it's not even super, super special in Western Africa. But I knew that I wanted to have a strong brand identity and I wanted a brand that connected all people of color together. So for me, going towards my roots on my dad's side, which is the Ghanaian side, Ghana just kind of brings together all Black people, to be honest. So you have obviously the Ghanaians in West Africa, you have um, Ghanaians in the in the Caribbean, in Jamaica, called the Maroons. And then you have African-Americans and Africans here in the diaspora. So I wanted to have a brand identity that brought all people of color together to be able to promote texture hair. So Adwa just basically means female born on a Monday. There's other meanings, um, born with a strong desire to endure, um, a really steadfast person. Honestly, everything that describes my personality but essentially, Adwa means born on a Monday. Okay, okay. And as I had said earlier when I was introducing you, there's been a Sephora partnership since 2019. Can you tell us how that came about? Yeah, I. it's so crazy because I didn't even realize it was as much of a big deal then as it as it is today. Like, a, every, a lot of retailers reached out to us, to be honest. I think we just offered something different and unique down to our packaging, the voice of the brand, which I just kind of made my voice. Um, and everything was just super unique to what we were doing and kind of still is in the space. So in 2019, it was February, we get an email from 
someone at Sephora and was like, hi, I found your brand. I really love to chat with you. And I was like, what? How did you even know I was here? Because we were so small. I mean, the brand started in my loft apartment and then we moved to a showroom downtown, but we didn't go out. We didn't have any media, like nothing. It was just like kind of like this brand that I was just kind of like pumping out products to people. I wasn't even sure how anybody knew that we were there. I really just had my head down. So I responded to the email and we had a conversation and they were like, we would love if you would send us your assortment. Um, so we sent them all of our products and we put a nice little care package together. Um, I still wasn't really thinking anything of it. And then three weeks later, they were like, oh, we got the products. We love it. I guess they shared it with some of their team members to try. We'd like to have a conversation with you. And I had a conversation with Sephora, I think it was like end of March of 2019. And I had a conversation with actually my merchant now, Elise Valentine. And there was another girl, Jessica, who's actually no longer at Sephora. And I was adamant that we were not going to go to retail. I did not see, I did not see Audra Beauty in retail, but if I did, Sephora would be the only, uh, partner that I saw us at from a marketing and branding perspective. But I I was really adamant about retail because in working with the texture hair care brands of, you know, my day, the natural hair care brands that were on shelf, mostly in the mass category, whenever I would be in store, no one would help the customer. Like there was no information about the products. No one knew anything. I literally go to these stores and I'd be standing in the target aisle for two, three hours because there's so many things on shelf and no one knows what the difference is or what should they use and hair types and all of that. So I was like, I don't want my customer to have this experience. I want my customer to be able to come to us or have somebody that's knowledgeable where they can ask questions to and learn how to use the products. I didn't want the information to come from YouTube. I wanted it to come from us. So I really didn't find a retailer that was really investing into their people and giving that type of information out. And when I had a conversation with Sephora, it was such an honest conversation. Like it was like, because I think, I don't want to say I didn't have anything to lose, but I think I went into the relationship not really even it not mattering to me if we went into retail, I was able to be very, very honest. And what drew me to them was it was such an honest conversation. And they were like, Julian, we are aligned. We hear you. We don't want that either. I was like, I don't want to create 50,000 SKUs. I don't want to have to create a new collection every six months. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. And they were like, we don't want you to do that as well. So it was the first time that someone validated my pain points of what I was seeing in the industry. And then we're like, we want you to be you, Julian Otto, Audra Beauty. We want you to have this voice and we want to be able to amplify that. And I think that just really got to me. And then I was like, okay, but wait, I don't have no money. I'm bootstrapped. How am I going to do this? Like you can put me on shelf, but how am I going to do all the other things? And I think in a way that I hear that you're not supposed to be transparent with your retailer. I was, and I am. And that really, for me, strengthened the relationship because I came in putting all my cards on the table, letting you know that I'm, or letting Sephora know, I'm committed to being here. I'm committed to doing the work and I can do it, but I need help. I need help but beyond just sitting on your shelf. And they were 100% on board. And it took me a while because I had to like figure out how am I going to get the money to, you know, do the first purchase order plus the safety stock 12 weeks that they wanted to. So we didn't end up signing our agreement with Sephora until November of 2019, slated to go into 98 stores and online April of 2020, like right before all of the unrest in the country happened. 
Wow. So there's a, <laughs> a lot there. I, a lot has happened in the natural and textured hair space since 2017 and even since 2020. What are your thoughts now on expanding retail beyond Sephora? Um, to be honest with Audra Beauty, we, it's more, it's so conflicting because I know business is business and everything I read and everybody says you go where the customers are. But for, for me, there's so much nuance into who we are as a brand, even hair care, you know, hair care is kind of like the stepchild of beyond skincare and makeup. So for me, making sure that our distribution is super lean and I'm being smart about how we grow supersedes the need to grow fast. So for us right now, we're exclusively at Sephora. Um, we actually are launching into 158 additional stores this spring. So we're going to be at 448 U.S. Sephora doors, which is huge because we're not even two years old yet. And we we've just been like increasing our door count. We're also at Sephora Canada and we're going into all Sephora. We're at 48 doors now and in spring we'll be at all Canada doors, which I believe is around 96 or 98. So that'll put us like just shy of 600, which is a lot. We're still, we still don't have any outside funding. We're, I'm still kind of doing this all on my own. So for me, it's about being smart and where we go and how we move and wanting to grow, but not wanting to grow too fast because there's a lot of pain points that come with just spreading yourself too thin. Um, I never really saw Audra Beauty as a type of brand that was in a hundred thousand doors. Um, I want this brand for me. It's about providing this audience with an experience, an experience that they haven't had before. Being able to walk into a prestige space, which didn't exist prior to 2017, there were no textured natural hair care brands positioned prestige. It didn't exist. Everybody was at mass. So for me, it's like, okay, how do I want this customer to experience the brand, to experience the product? And it's really more about building this category for this customer because every brand that is in our category or our niche does not exclusively speak to this customer where we are the only ones. Um, so for right now, we're going to stay lean within our distribution. You know, hopefully at some point we can go into the Sephora and Kohl's. That's additional, you know, several hundred doors opportunity. We are looking at global expansion. So our customers are in places like the UK, overseas. We've gotten a lot of requests from Africa and the Caribbean. So making sure that we can find a right partner, but the, finding a right partner that's going to handle our brand with integrity and our customers are really going to enjoy shopping at supersedes the need to grow because with texture hair care and natural hair care, just because you put a brand in a retailer, it doesn't mean that the people enjoy shopping there or they're even being valued in shopping there. It just means they're going to go there to buy the product because there's no other choice. So it's it's a little bit more nuanced for me. Um, but right now we're just interested in growing our Sephora business. There's so much opportunity there and we haven't honestly even scratched the surface. So Every, every, every year, we're just looking to do better than the next year to improve, to, um, improve brand visibility and, um, you know, continue to make ourselves profitable. What percentage of your sales come from Sephora? Yeah. So right now, well, as of last year, we had a 35, 65% ratio. We, we really, when we went into Sephora, we really, up until really this year, we like pushed all of our business to Sephora. We were telling our clients, buy from Sephora, buy some from Sephora. All of our social media posts was going to Sephora. All of our PR posts still goes to Sephora. Um, so right now we're at 35, 65%. I think a sweet spot for me would be a 45, 55 because we really still want to have the customer be able to experience us and hear their voice, you know, hear from our customer. Obviously, when you're in retail, you lose lose a lot of that data. So I think a sweet spot and where we're trying to get to for this year is still like driving our business to Sephora because honestly, Sephora can grow my business a lot faster and better than I can. They have the tools. They have more tools and retargeting tools than I have. So I've really leaned into that. 
But I think, you know, creating like exclusive experiences and exclusive um, SKUs, you know, we, we want to make sure that our customer still comes to us um, in addition to going to Sephora. Do you think you could sort of follow a drunk elephant strategy here? That is that you would remain a Sephora exclusive brand all the way up until an exit if there eventually is one? Gosh, girl, you are just so spot on. <laughs> I don't know where you're getting your intel. It's so funny that of all the brands you say drunk elephant because first time I heard us compare to drunk elephant was my... um my merchant, Elise, she was like, Julian, your branding is just so Audra Beauty. There's nothing like it, like Drunk Elephant. Um, but I deeply admire Tiffany Masterson. I think if there was a founder that I would model myself after would be her, just because I love that she's been able to have anonymity and haven't put herself in front of the brand. And it's been more about the brand. And I know that I have a really strong story and I want to tell my story to inspire. But, I, you know, even if you like look on our social media, unlike other natural hair care brands in the space, I'm not the star of the show. My hair is not the star of the show. So absolutely, I think Drunk Elephant is a perfect example. Sephora brings so much. I mean, I've talked to so many different retailers. As I've said earlier, we've been blessed enough to get a lot of offers and have a lot of conversation. And Sephora is Sephora for a reason. And it's really about their people. To be honest, we were given this entire army of people from dot com team to education team to merchant team to this this that and I'm like oh my god so anytime I have a question or anytime you know I want to know something as someone that's a complete novice to retail like I'm experienced in hair but for the retail landscape knew nothing I always felt like I had a partner and I could pick up the phone and I could ask my dumb questions. What is EDI? What, what the hell does that mean? What am I doing here? You know, and I would have somebody to tell me. So I think for me, for right now, it's about strengthening our Sephora relationship. And I think the drunk elephant example is one of the best examples that I tend to kind of use, lead, use as example. Like she did it. You can do it. Just kind of stay. Like even when I read articles, she was like, I don't really look to the left or the right. I don't really look at other brands. I just kind of focus on what we're doing. And it's so true because once you start doing that, you tend to lose focus. There's always something new. There's always something hot. There's always something someone thinks is going to buzz. But I think the brands that stand the test of time are the brands that kind of stay doing, you know, know their strengths and, and lean into those strengths. And I see that being Ajwa Beauty, like us, as long as I can, as long as it makes business sense, I do see us being a Sephora brand. And you and Tiffany are both in Texas. So we Tiffany, are. if you're listening to this podcast, <laughs> Julian would love a phone call. Yeah, get at me, girl. Let's <laughs> be BFFs. I love her. I love the brand. I'm total drunk elephant fan. There's something else you've noticed a few times that the brand is self-funded. Um, tell me more about this decision. Are you interested in funding? I, I am always intrigued by this question. To be honest, it wasn't a decision. I couldn't get funding, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. first year, you know, 12 months, 14 months, we made a million dollars just on my website. I'm like, oh, holy cow, I could do this. You know, went to the bank to get money and they were like, gave me some automated decline. I think I didn't have enough deposits or something like that, they said. And then when we were going into Sephora, we tried to get money with our purchase orders, couldn't get any money there. There's always like a different excuse. You know, it's like you don't have any prior receivables or, you know, you're still too small or so it's not like I didn't try to be quite frank. I did try. Um, I think now obviously we're in a position where we can fundraise. But, you know, something about adversity and when you go through adversity and you uh, make it out. And I say that lightly because we're still very much in the climb. But once you see your potential, you're like, well, maybe I could do this. So for me, it's about, you know, will I need a fundraise at some point? Yes, maybe. And I'm not opposed to it. But for right now, it's like, let's let me see how far I can push it before I have to fundraise. Obviously, if I'm at this revenue versus this revenue, I can get a better valuation and I could come to the table negotiating. You know, for me, it's like, 
Do I come to the table where I'm desperate or do I come to the table where I don't need the money, but it's great to have the cash and have the relationship because more, I need a strategic partner, right? More than the money. So, you know, all that to say, it wasn't really a decision. It was kind of the cards that I was dealt and I just had to make a way and figure it out. Um, we did a friend round, like I, I got, I borrowed money from who is a friend now, but he wasn't a friend then. Um, a friend connected me to him and that's how we got into Sephora, you know, paid it back with our first purchase order. So we've kind of, when, when I've needed it, we've been able to tap luckily, um, into people that we know locally, you know, tell my story, but, um, you know, I'm just kind of feeling everything out. Is there's I'm open to it. It's just it's not something that I've embarked on yet. And when I need to, when the time is right, and when I have the right partner, it's definitely something that I will entertain. Yeah, as you mentioned a while ago, you're very heads down, focused on the business right now. Going out and fundraising or or entertaining it is uh, might be directing you away from the brand, actually. Yeah. And I have those conversations. We do have VCs that reach out to us. I have a couple that we've been talking for a while and keeping the relationship. Um, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm always having the conversation because again, I, I don't, I, I didn't even know what VC meant in 2017, right? Now I've like Googled and had conversations and now I can speak about it really eloquently because I've gotten some more information. So for me, it's like the more information you have, the better you're in a position to make better decisions. Um, so I do have the conversations and I'm building the relationship. But as I stated, it's going to really come down to having a partner, a strategic partner that can bring things to the business that I don't have more than the check. Because, you know, money is a tricky thing. Everything costs so much, especially after COVID, right? Like I see brands raising a million dollars, two million dollars. I'm like, that cannot fly. Like, you know, we have to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars in freight shipping to bring, you know, containers over. So if I raise that, that'd be like gone in like a very short time. So for me, it's like, okay, the check is the check. But if you don't know how to spend the check and if you don't tap into a partner that have relationships that you could tap into places to grow the business, that check can go very fast. Um, that money is not really a lot of money, especially when you're operating with 600 retail doors um, and anything can happen on digital. So it's all about making the right decision. And I guess I'll know, trust my own instinct and I know I'll know it's time to go to the next level when I when I feel it. I haven't felt it yet. When Adura Beauty launched into Sephora officially in 2020, it was just before the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement in the U.S. What sort of impact short term and long term has that had on your brand and business? Well, you know, obviously it was good because now everybody's Black, 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 black brand. Um, and, you know, sometimes that unfortunate things have to happen for good things to come out of this. So I think overall, if you were a black owned brand and a scalable brand, you got some attention. And I'm sure that's why we got a lot more attention from VCs and from retailers. So, you know, there was definitely an impact to my business. I can't say that there wasn't. Um, to be transparent, I didn't have the kind of numbers in 2020 that some brands <laughs> brands had. I, I was reading and I saw brands like, yeah, they my business increased by 6,000%. We, we did better. We got more brand visibility, but we also had issues bringing over our packaging um, um, for launch. So we had a lot of supply chain issues then. It's so crazy because COVID hit my business in January of 2020, way before it even hit um, the, the U.S. because all of my packaging and everything was custom from China. So all of my suppliers shut down. So I was trying to figure out how am I going to get this over so that I could launch in Sephora. Our launch ended up actually being postponed till May because of that. So we, as that was happening in June, like products was going to Sephora, you know, hadn't really, really launched yet. And then we sent everything to Sephora and kind of low leveled our website so that they could have the inventory. So it was not really great timing for me to be honest, but I have gotten the residual effects of that with more attention to black owned brands 
And on one hand, I think that it's great. On the other hand, it's annoying to me, to be quite honest, because like I understand how we get that we got there. And I know a lot of companies wanted to right the wrong. But in my opinion, there were just too many knee jerk reactions. I feel like everyone should have collected the data, gone back and figure out how to do it where it's not so performative. You, I had brands reaching out to me that didn't even know how to spell my name, didn't know nothing about my brand, but just wanted a black owned brand on their roster. And I was like, okay, guys, no, what pause, you know what I mean? Like, I understand the need for wanting to do something, but you either want to do it right or you want to make it something that you check off your list, which is not going to last. So, you know, obviously I'm, I, I'm conflicted in talking about it because I'm a beneficiary of it. I wish. We weren't there in our country, in our world. I wish things were just equal so it wouldn't have to be about Black-owned or non-Black-owned. It could just be about we make really great products. We're innovating really great products. We launched Blue Tansy collection. We are the only hair care brand that has ever used Blue Tansy. Um, there's only three brands that scale, which is Sunday Riley Herbivore, and then there's a, another brand called May Lindstrom, but because it's such a rare, expensive oil, and it's kind of tricky to even scale with it because it's not an oil that's overproduced once you have the real oil. So it's like, okay, can we talk about my Blue Tansy collection versus me being Black-owned? <laughs> yeah, can we talk about the effects of our reparative clay treatment mask that's you know, 97% naturally derived and has all these good for you ingredients and can repair hair. Like, can we talk about Audra Beauty in the way that you talk about Drunk Elephant and not lead with my color? And maybe give me some visibility because people can research. They'll Google who is Audra Beauty owner. Newsflash, she's a black woman. So, I sometimes get really annoyed by all of the black owned brands, black owned brands, black owned brands. I think it's, I think it's annoying, but then it's like, okay, <laughs> I don't know. Like I said, I'm conflicted. Yeah, Sharon Shooter, I was having a conversation with her just the other week, and she brought this point up as well, that a lot of Black owners, Black brand owners, don't want to be known necessarily as a Black-owned brand because you're not buying a brand or a product because it's Black-owned or Black-founded. It's because the product works, because the brand is good, um, which I thought was such a, an interesting take and one that I'm, I'm glad you've brought up. It's, uh, it is this uh, push and pull relationship, I imagine. Well, and we're pigeonholed, right? We're pigeonholed for Audra Beauty and because I'm a Black woman, so the only people that could use my products are other Black people. But you'll have an Olaplex that promote to Black, White, you know, Green, everyone. So it's like they're putting Black-owned brands in a place where like we've, we've done support in store events and I've literally been in front of our focal wall. We're on the next big thing wall and there will be people coming in there looking for hair care products and we'll skip right over it because they feel like that product is for black people. So the world also pigeonholes you like if you're black, the only per people you're capable of making things for is other black people. But all the other brands, hair care brands, they are for everybody. You cannot grow a business or scale a business. We want to be a billion dollar brand. How am I going to be a billion dollar brand if you only pitch me or talk about me being black? So I think it's a huge disadvantage. I don't, I don't think that that's the intention, but that's what's done. You know, and then when, you know, there's these marketing levers that they put you in and you're in Essence and you're in Ebony and you're, I'm like, what, what do you, what do you do with Old Blacks and where, where are they? You know, that's where I want to go because it's, you know, it, it's just so interesting. There's a lot of unconscious bias, implicit bias on both sides, not just white people or retailer. There's even that on black owned brand side because, you know, when we started, being more diverse in our marketing, which we need it to be. Um, you also have black women like, oh, you're selling out. You know, you're, you know, you sold out to Sephora. And I'm like, no, I didn't. Um, you know, everyone should be able to buy our products in the same vein that you go out and you buy Pantene, you know? So it, it's definitely a conditioning that happens on both sides. And honestly, it happens on both sides. It's not just on one side. Uh, it's often talked about like it's on one side, but I see it on both sides. And I think that's my unique immigrant view where it's not like a black perspective or a white perspective. It's this is 
Because these systems exist for so long, these are the repercussions on both sides and the mindset on both sides due to that system. And we, we, it, 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 we both do it. And I think one of the reasons that I love the Sephora relationship, I know that they value me and, um, I value that they value my voice is because I'm able to bring these kind of conversations to, senior level, Priya or whoever, I'm like, okay, you know, I, I basically had to say, I, I don't want to be, uh, I don't want you to just talk about, like, I understand you have to talk about me because I am Black-owned and I'm proud of that, but I'm not only Black-owned, right? There's so much more to me. So yes, let's get the press, a Black-owned press, but hey, I, I'm also this, I'm also these things too. And I, I think just being in that mindset, which seems to prove difficult for a lot of people. We just have to keep pushing back and having these type of conversations, honestly. Julian, what are you most looking forward to this year with Adua Beauty? Um, Honestly, everything. This has been such a great year. We signed on with Trachtenberg, which is a PR firm that I've been like, even like I worked with them in the space. There's been so many full circle moments for me. It's like I worked with these um, these people through bigger brands and now I'm um, working with them. So that's been a really great partnership again because it definitely feels like my team has gotten bigger and I have people to help me increase the business. And we've been able to do a lot of amazing things already. And it's just February 15th. Um, we have a, a lot of exciting new products that we're launching that I'm super excited for. We're not just launching new products in the same vein that a lot of consumers are tired of like another skincare brand launching another cleansing um, product. We're really in the lab and we're really innovating. We're really challenging ourselves as a highly natural based brand that's sitting on a shelf, Sephora shelf with these formulations and ingredients that would really it wouldn't even be able to go to shelf. Um, so I'm excited about some of the things we have coming. We're planning, um, we're segmenting into a new category. I'm really excited about that, um, of, of um, broadening our voice. And I'm just excited to see what happens. It's been such an interesting two years because you can't really plan out a full year. Like everything can change um, in June. So I'm just excited to see what happens. For me, it's like I'm always doing the work and I think when you're consistent and you show up and you do the work you will land where you're supposed to land and I'm just excited to see where we land. Julian it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast today thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Thank you Emma and thank you guys for the work that you're doing as I said earlier I'm a huge fan of the show I've been listening for a while I've listened to everybody and I really love the way how you guys conduct interviews so thank you for having this platform so thank you Thank you so much for tuning in to the Glossy Beauty Podcast Tune in next week for another episode and of course if you haven't already subscribed please hit that button